Good morning. My name is Sean. I'm the pastor here at Grace Church, and I'm glad you guys uh, are here today. How many guys had a hard time waking up today? But anybody besides me at all? Church started, at, it starts at 9.30, and at like 8.40, I was like, dang it, I'm probably going to have to get up. <laughs> so it's a good thing I live closer. I'd have, been, I'd have been late, but I'm really glad that you guys are, are here. I'm, I'm struggling with my identity right now. Don't freak out. But um, like basketball season is, was over last Saturday, so I don't know what to do with my Saturdays anymore. And um, my son is in eighth grade going into ninth grade, so he's done with like little league basketball. So I know that next basketball season, I'm going to be going through withdrawals. And it's the anticipation of those future draws that are causing me to have anxiety attacks now about it. I'm like, I, I, I love coaching. I've, I've been a coach, uh, wow, for the last 15 years straight, I've been coaching something. And now my eighth grader is about to go into high school. So um, the, the, it, my, my life's not going to be fun anymore, apparently. I think that's what it is. Uh, so I wanted, like, I, I asked somebody, I said, can I coach if I don't have a kid? In the, like, how, how do I keep coaching in the system without looking like a creepy old dude who just wants to hang out with kids, right? Like, I don't want to be that guy at all. I just want to, like, just coach basketball. And I've, I've coached my kids in all of their sports. Lauren, uh, Lauren started off in soccer. And then um, she, she was out there in the field, and then, and then I'm, I've got a couple of beautiful pictures of her in the net, um, and she's bored to death, and she just walks over to the goalie post and just hangs on to it like this during the game. I got some pictures of her like that, and I coached my kids in, in soccer and basketball and Lauren in softball, uh, the boys in baseball, until baseball got so boring that Ryan as a 10-year-old was like, I hate my life. I was like, all right, you don't have to play baseball anymore. Oh, my word, they need to speed that game up. Can I get an amen? That's in the book of Revelations. Okay, not really. It's Isaiah. But anyway, um, so I'm just saying I, I coached my kids until I feel like they've gone beyond my capacity to teach them. Does that make sense? Um, so like basketball, I never stopped teaching my kids because that was like the thing that I, like I played all the way through high school. I sat the bench one year in college, um, which is true. I never got to play. And I was like on the end of, actually when I, in, in college, it's a really small school. It sounds, people are like, ooh, you played, no, it was a teeny tiny college. It was one of those deals where like almost everybody made the team. Not really, but I made the travel, I, I didn't make the traveling team, I made the practice squad, but over Christmas break. Not that I need to talk about this. My point is, is I never got to play unless we were 20 up or 20 down, and there were less than two minutes left. So me and the other, I'm number 11 on the bench, and, or, or 12, depending on what the mood of the coach was that day. Um, but if, you, if, you, if there's like 30 seconds left and you get into the game, they report all of the game statistics in the paper the next day. So we would look at each other and we would go, make the paper. And the only way you could make the paper, and what that meant was, is you get your name in the box scores if you scored a point or fouled somebody. So the 30 seconds I played, every college basketball game I ever played, I punched somebody. <laughs> I just like, my name's going to get in a freaking paper. I hit you. I'll trip you. I'll, you can even tech. Call tech. I don't even care. My name's in it. There's proof that I played college ball. I'm just saying, I, lo I love that. Um, but, but my kids are, are, are um, uh, each, each time that they outgrew me, I backed out. And, and, and the reason why I backed out was not because I lost the desire to coach them. I had just reached the end of my capacity to help them get better. Does that make sense? So our capacity is shaped by different things. It's shaped by the things that we know and the things that we've experienced. Um, is, is what that's shaped by. This, this past week, Ryan got an opportunity to practice with some 
really, really, really good basketball players in, uh, from the city and, and here in the South Metro area. They're putting together a team, and Ryan got invited to play, play on that. And so as, as a guy who prides himself on like, like basketball, um, and by the way, I did call Wisconsin yesterday over Villanova, just, just so you know. Um, oh, sorry, I, I, my whole, the rest of my bracket's busted, but that one I got right. Um, but, but so I, I go to this practice and I want to, I'm like, okay, all right, who are these other guys who are coaching? And then I realized like five minutes into his practice that these guys are legit. Like they're like, holy cow, these guys know basketball in a way I don't know basketball. And so I start asking questions about the coaches and I find out that the coaches um, have, have all played, well, one of them played D3 ball, one of them played division, two of them played division one, uh, two of them played in the NBA, uh, one of them for multiple years, and uh, one of them is still playing in, in Europe and China. They, I guess they have opposite seasons, so he's still, he's still doing it professionally. And you can tell, not just because they're almost seven feet tall, and they are almost seven feet tall. I hate walking up to somebody who's like 6'5 or whatever and say, do you play basketball? And they say, no, because I punch them and run. It's just a waste of God-given natural resources. That's how I feel about that. Um, sorry. Or volleyball or something, right? So um, in, 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 in any case, the problem that I'm getting to, what, what, by the way, this is going somewhere in the message, all right? You guys are like, how long are you going to talk about basketball? Uh, apparently until the end of the tournament. But, um, um, the, but the, the, the problem with me wasn't desire. It, it was capacity. And it's that idea of capacity um, that, that Brian Buford started off this series with. It's, it's the idea um, that, that uh, uh, we, as those of us who've been rescued from our disobedience towards God and our selfishness towards others, should have a greater capacity for compassion, kindness, and generosity towards those who are most desperate for us. It's not that Christians have a greater desire to help people than people who aren't people of faith. That's not a true statement. I think we all know people who are not religious at all who are better than half of the religious people we know. Can I get amen on that one right there? <laughs> you don't have to. I'm just saying, like it's, it's not, the, it's, it's, it's not the, the desire. It's not that Christians want to do more good than people who are not Christians. But what Jesus gets to is that Christians should have a greater capacity to do good. When we recognize how much we have rebelled against God, and how unforgivable some of the things that we've done against God and against others are. And when we recognize that God has forgiven even those things. And when we go back to God a million times over and over and over and over and over again. Confessing and asking for forgiveness for the same stupid things over and over and over and over again. And he still forgives us every time we ever sincerely repent of that sin and ask for it. The recognition of that should move us. To have, we have now the capacity to continue to forgive others when they've sinned against us over and over and over and over and over again. And so the point that Jesus makes to the, Peter one time, he says, how many times should I forgive somebody for doing the same thing? Seven times? Because almost everybody, Christian and not, would say that that's pretty generous. And then Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. So that it's not that you should be a better person. It's that, Peter, you should have a greater capacity because of what you know about what God's done for you. God's generosity towards you deepens the well that you're able to draw from. Does this make sense? That's why he says, don't just love people who can love you back. Everybody does that. Everybody, religious or non-religious, Christian or non-Christian, everybody can be nice to people who are nice to them. 
He says, the evidence that you've been rescued from your sin and have begun following me is that you can love your enemies. That's the evidence. But he's talking about capacity. Does this make sense? He says, do good to those who misuse you, who speak evil about you. Pray for them who take advantage of you. That's what he says. You should have a greater capacity. And in recognition of our relationship with God, that God, as Brian talked about in week one, doesn't just show up in human history to take the punishment for our sins so that we can be rescued from the consequences of our sin. He rescued us from the consequences of our sin so that the main thing could happen. And that was not just the get out of, get out of hell thing. It was so that we could be adopted into his family. That was the point all along. It's just that sin was the thing that kept us out. Spiritually, we are born orphans apart from God. We talked about that last week in the second week. We're born separated from God by our sin, with our hearts bent away, away from, from God. He rescues us. He forgives us for that sin so that we can be brought back into his family. And then James, the half-brother of Jesus, we talked about this last week, said that the greatest act and demonstration of the gospel Gospel is an old English word. It comes from an old English word, God's spell, the, uh, the story of God rescuing mankind. The greatest picture of the story of God rescuing mankind, according to the half-brother of Jesus, James, is this, that you take care of orphans and widows who have nobody else to take care of them. That's the good. When you do things for people who can't do anything back for you, that's, that is the greatest picture. That, that is pure religion. It's the greatest act of spiritual devotion to God, and it's the greatest picture to the entire world of what God has done on our behalf. So according to James, and, and, and I made a joke about it. I said, so if you, I'm not saying that if you don't adopt a kid or foster a kid that you don't love Jesus, but if you love Jesus, you'll foster a kid or adopt, adopt a kid. And I was joking about that, and I, I wanted to point out that I am neither an adoptive parent nor a foster parent. So this series has like really been hard for me. Not, I'm the biggest hypocrite. That's not the, here's the thing. I don't believe that God's going to call all of you to adopt a child. And I don't believe that God wants all of you to be a foster child. A foster. <laughs> At this point, it's too late. So... But you're like, if somebody will pay for my bills, I'll take it. <laughs> I'm us. No, don't, don't even. I don't, I don't want to make fun of this situation. Um, but I don't think that everybody here should be a foster parent either. I, I don't. But according to the scriptures, every one of us should somehow be involved. Somehow. It is, it is on us. Those of us who've been rescued from our sin. Those of us who are helpless without God. Those of us who were in the gutter of our sin before God showed up in our lives and had some type of a spiritual intervention that got you to where you are now. Truthfully, we now have the responsibility to intervene on behalf of those who are sitting in their loneliness, who are sitting in their rejection, who are incapable of helping themselves out. We have that obligation. So what I am saying is that everybody here should at least pray about whether or not God wants them to adopt a kid. Everybody here should at least pray about being a foster kid. Oops, dang it, I did it again being a foster parent. 
Now, if, 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 you're, if you're in high school, if you live with your parents, if you're, you're, in, you're in middle school, I, I don't think that you can check out of this teaching because I think that there are helpless people. There are those who are defenseless in your school. You see people get picked on all the time. You walk by the table with that guy who's sitting all by himself or those two girls that nobody else will talk to. There are foster kids in your school, and you can probably guess who they are because they're the ones who showed up in February, not in January. And they didn't stay long. They were only in your school until April. Right? And it's not just foster and adoptive kids. It's, it's anybody who needs somebody to love them. I think that those of us who are followers of Jesus should naturally be bent toward the underdog, toward the picked on, toward the abused, toward the lonely, toward the socially awkward, towards those who are isolated at work, even because of their own choices. They're, they're, just, they're just hateful to people. But people who wound people are people who've been wounded. People who hurt people are people who have been hurt. And I know why God put you in that middle school. It wasn't so you could be the most popular kid in there, so that you could be a representation of Jesus in the seventh grade. And I know why you're in that high school, and it's not just to get good grades. It's to make a difference in that school. That's why God has you there. In the state of Massachusetts, before I get to the state of Massachusetts, there are 147 million orphans in the world. And that's just a, that's a big number to us. <laughs> Statistic. I had to say it or else I'd be stuck on that the rest of the teaching. And it's a, it's because it's a big old glob. It's, a, it's, it's just, it's just a, a, a clump of, of data. But the truth is, God knows the face behind all 147 million of those individual kids with individual stories that would break your stinking heart. He knows why they're alone in the world. And there are two billion, supposedly two billion Christians in the world. I don't think there's supposed to be 147 million orphans. I don't think there should be. In the state of Massachusetts, there's 9,000 kids in the foster care system. And there's only enough foster care families to house half of them. That means the other half of them are in, what, group homes. And I'm sure that they work really hard to make sure that those places are safe but you may know some stories like I do of how sometimes those things can be more dangerous than other places, than the situation they came out of potentially. There are 800 kids right now on the list to be adopted in the state of Massachusetts. Eight, and there are churches everywhere full of Christians who love God and have the capacity to love greatly. And there's, eight, there's only 800. In my opinion, there shouldn't be a number on that list. There should be a list of Christians, families, who are waiting for the next kid to come up for adoption. I just, just think we need to do something about it. I don't think it's a matter of charity. There's a guy named Russell Moore who is a... Oh, by the way, before I, before I get to that, it's not in my notes, but I penciled it in. 
So when I was looking up the stats for the state of Massachusetts, I called the Department of Ch- Children and Families, DCF, in downtown Boston, left a message on somebody's uh, uh, voicemail. Um, and then on, on, but that was like over a week ago. Well, this past Friday, I had the director of DCF for the state of Massachusetts call me on my cell phone. I'm like, hello? She introduced herself, said, I'm the director of Department of Children and Families for the state of Massachusetts. I'm like, oh. oh. <laughs> and I'm like, she knows famous people. Right? And she said, uh, Can you? I got your name on it. I didn't really quite understand the message that was left for me. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about, about why you called? And I said, Yeah, I was just calling to get some statistics because I, I'm, I'm part of a church family in the South Metro area of Boston. And we have a lot of people who, who love God and, and love others and want to do good. And we're in a series right now on, on adoptive and, and foster care. And she says, What? She goes, that's like all you're talking about in church? I'm like, yeah. She goes, oh, my word, that's amazing. Um, so we talked a little bit more. I said, my, my hope is that we can get 20 or 30 families who will adopt kids. She goes, oh, my word, this is like, this is unbelievably exciting. Where are you at? I said, we're in Avon. She goes, all right, I'm going to call the director of the, Boston, the Brockton office. Uh, she's going to call you in a few minutes. All right, goodbye. <laughs> 30 minutes later, Hildred calls me. He says, hey, my, I'm the director of the, the Brockton uh, D, DCF, and, and my boss told me to call you. What's up? Told her the same thing. She goes, oh, my word. This is amazing. We just had a meeting that all of us, our full-time job now is recruiting families because we're so desperate to find healthy families who can help us with these kids. She said, what time are your services? Can I set up a table? I'll help everybody, anybody we just we need. I'm sorry. I think those of us who claim to be followers of Jesus, who are rescued from our brokenness, who know what it feels like to be rescued from being alone, from being hurt, those of us who've had our broken hearts put back together again, we should be the ones who are most desperate to help those who are most desperate to be helped. So she said that when we get a group of names together and people who are interested in becoming foster parents and adoptive parents, that they're actually, the Department of Children and Families is going to come here and make sure they personally help you walk through the process to fast track you to be a foster parent. I think that's awesome. I think it's sad, though, that she was shocked that a church would be thinking like this. I think it breaks God's heart. That there's kids all, and they're unseen, and the reason why they're unseen is they're not our kids. Like, I see my kids, but truthfully, I think every kid should have somebody who's getting onto them when they walk into the street without looking both ways. I think every kid should have a parent, a parent figure, teach them how to ride a bike. I think every kid needs a, a story of how his dad or his foster dad or his adopted dad threw him without consent into the deep end of the pool and lawed him how to swim. I think every kid ought to be beat up by his father with pillows. When Garrett was three, every dad does this. We want to test the boundaries of our kids. Like, I want to know where the wimpy line is. Now, we don't ever do this when the mom is around, but I think every dad does this. We'll be wrestling with our kid, and then like, we'll do it like a little bit extra tight. Now, Okay, that's where it is. <laughs> don't tell DCF on me. 
I just want to know where the wimpy line is, right? They just, I just I want to make sure that's a little bit farther out. I just don't want that wimpy line right here. It needs to be a few steps before the wimpy line. Now, everybody's got a wimpy line. I'm a grown man. I got a wimpy line, right? It's just it's way out there. I can't even see it. That's how far my wimpy line is. It's way out. It's deep, right? So you just want to make sure that you keep pushing your boy's wimpy line out. That's it. So he's three years old. I've got him. He's standing up on my bed, and, you know, I've got the pillow, and I, and I go, come on, buddy, it's a box, right? So he's like boxing like this, and I, I grab a couple of throw pillows because my wife has a whole bunch of unnecessary shrapnel on our bed that I have to take off. This is clutter. Like, we don't do, like, take it off, put it on. Like, we don't use it for, it's ridiculous. Amen. Truly, that's how you can tell a guy is married. You just walk into his bedroom. If he has an extra pillow on the bed, homeboy's married. That's just the way that, like, because, like, dudes would never do that. But I grab those two pillows, and I'm, you know, kind of smacking them a little bit and get a little bit harder. And, you know, he's boxing his daddy, and, and I'm taking these pillows. I'm doing a little bit harder, and he's taking it. And I'm like, all right. I haven't hit that wimp. I wonder where that wimpy line is, though, right? So I'm hitting a little bit harder, and finally decide I'm just going to push them all the way. <laughs> so I go high and low. I take these two pillows, and I, the back of his leg, like, I, was, I kept going until I could get him turned sideways. And once I got him sideways, I took the low pillow and went to the, the back of the knees. And I took the high pillow, and I went right to the face. And I just, <laughs> they're pillows. They have any bricks in them or nothing. It was like I took two baseball bats. Boom! Right? The two pillows, and I went, Ugh! like this. There's like, and I depleted them, right? Like, just like, just the kid's feet went up in the air. We're on a bed, all right? Right? So, like, he lands on a bed. There's no blood, no bruise marks. So, there's no evidence. Um, like this. Now, I was a youth pastor, so he hung out with teenagers all the time. So, he pops up from that bed and he goes, You want a piece of me? You want some of this? And I was like, Yeah, baby. My boy's line is out there. I said, I'm just saying, all 9,000 of the kids in the foster care system needs a daddy who's going to help that boy push his wimpy line. They, all 800 of those unadopted kids who don't have any parents to go to, even when the family, there's no family to get healthy so that they can go back home. There's no home to go back to. There are 800 kids in this state right now who are asking, God, if you're there, why won't somebody love me? And that should do something to you. Not necessarily make you cry. I'm a little, my wimpy line is way up right now. <laughs> it's way up here. I'm, I'm okay with that because it's adjustable. It's, adju it's adjustable. But Russell Moore in his book, Adopted for Life, says this, the universe is at war and babies and children are the ones on the line. The old serpent, Satan, is coiled right now, his tongue flickering, watching for children that he can devour. The protection of children is not charity, it's spiritual warfare. All 147 million of those orphans in the world have a soul and will spend eternity somewhere. And Satan's fighting for them, and we're not pushing him back. There's, there's no defenses. There's, there's, there's 9,000 kids, excuse me. There's 4,500 kids in Massachusetts right now that nobody is fighting spiritually on their behalf. No one praying for them. 
No one talking to them about their struggles with faith, their relationship with God, or the brokenness that's in their heart. There's no one defending them. It's, it's not just charity. It's spiritual warfare. And in this area of our society, the church has not even started fighting yet. Adoption and foster care is best seen not as rescue, but as the willingness to suffer with them. It's not that the goal of foster care is just to give kids a roof over their head and food in their stomach. It's to walk with them through their pain. Because when the fun and excitement are of, of becoming a foster parent or adoptive parent is over, you're still left with a broken and deeply wounded human being. Your rescue of them isn't enough to heal them where they're broken most. Because for most of them, they're not ready to love back. That's spiritual warfare. Philippians chapter 2 tells us how the Bible says that Jesus did the same thing for us, how he humbled himself and walked with us, took on the form of a servant, the Bible says. Hebrews chapter 4 says that the reason why he did this is so that he could know our suffering, so that he could be rejected, so that he could feel loneliness, so that he could feel what it felt like to be alone, to be hurt by others, and to be disappointed, to be mistreated. And the Bible says that the reason why he was willing to do all of that is so that when you are going through it, he can walk with you. That's what adoptive care is about. That's what foster care is about. It's somebody walking up next to somebody who's walking through life all alone and not just telling them where to walk, but putting their arm around them and making sure they never walk alone again. Romans chapter 8, if you've got your Bible, go there. Romans chapter 8. Man, I'm tripping all over my wimpy line today. <laughs> Romans chapter 8, verse 15. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves? That's not what God, your relationship with God is all about. God wasn't looking for you to become, when you turned from your sin, your disobedience towards God to begin following Jesus, when you called out to God to rescue and save you from the consequences of your sin, your disobedience, and your selfishness. He didn't do that so that you would become a fearful slave, afraid that anytime you did something wrong, he'd smack you with a two by four. That's not why he did this. He didn't do this so that you'd be a mindless, uh, a mindless robot that just did everything, just, just started following rules. That's not what this was about. Instead, he says, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. That's what this was about. It was about you becoming his child, not his slave, so that now we can call him Abba, Father. That word Abba comes from a Greek word that means it's a familiar term. It, it, it'd be like daddy. God says, I want you to think of me as like dad, your heavenly dad. Now that changes. Truthfully, this, this, this matters. I think, I think our misunderstanding of the character and nature of our relationship with God is the reason why some of us are so spiritually dysfunctional is because we don't see God as a loving father figure. Now, some of us are at a disadvantage because we didn't have a loving father growing up, and I'm horribly sorry for that, and that, that is not as God would have had it. But he can be for you what no other human man has ever been for you. He's willing to do that. 
He cares when you struggle, when you lost your job, when you got cut from the team, when your first boyfriend broke up with you. These things matter to him. Why? Because they would matter to any good father. He's not distant. And some of us act like he is. Some of us have to act like we, we act like we have to beg for his attention. We come to God groveling. Oh, not that you would care about him. Stop that. You're his kid. Don't insult him. You can go before him boldly, Hebrews chapter 4 says. He went through all of this so that he could know how you feel. So since he does know how you feel, the Bible says that we can come boldly before the presence of God and talk to him face to face. God, this is what I'm dealing with and I need your help. You can do that. Why? Because he cares. Why? Because you're his kid now. Verse 17, and since we are his kids, we're his heirs, and, and in fact, together with Jesus, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share God's glory, we, what's the next word? Must. Share in his what? What's the next word? Suffering. This is the crowd response time. Ready? If we are going to share in God's glory, we, everybody say must. Share in his suffering. Because I've been rescued into God's family, I participate in the mission of God as a family member. Jesus being my co-heir, spiritually my older brother, my Lord, my master, my rescuer, my example, goes first and sets the example. He says, if you're going to be a follower of me, Jesus, then you need to know. There are two things you need to know. Number one, Jesus suffered in order to give us what we needed most. And two, I'm going to need to suffer to make sure others have what they need most from me. That's a non-negotiable if I'm going to follow Jesus. That I'm going to suffer in order to make sure others have what they need. I'm going to suffer if I'm going to live, love, give, and serve the way Jesus lived, love, gave, and served. It will not be comfortable. It will be inconvenient. And it will cost me something. So how did Jesus suffer? There's probably multiple ways. There's three we're going to be talking about. The first one is this, Philippians chapter 2. If you've got your Bible, I want you to go to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7 says, Though he, Jesus, was God. I referenced this verse a minute ago, but we didn't read it. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges, and he took on the humble position of a servant, a slave, and was born as a human being when he appeared in, in human form. See, when Jesus appeared in human form, he, he made a permanent decision. To suffer with Jesus means that you put yourself at a disadvantage permanently, which is what Jesus did. Even after the resurrection, when Jesus comes to the disciples, he's making breakfast of fish for them by the Sea of Galilee. And the reason why he's making breakfast of fish for them is because Jesus was hungry. He, God, chose to humble himself and take on the position of a lowly human being permanently disadvantaging himself, permanently putting himself out. In heaven, the Bible says that all of us will receive new bodies without disease, without, 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 without scars. I, I, I have psoriasis. I did not say cirrhosis. That's important to note. I have psoriasis, which is that, that skin thing. So I've always got Band-Aids on my fingers. Sometimes you can see them on the screen. And, and, and someday, I'm not going to have psoriasis in uh, I'm making them sure. So someday I'm not going to be alcoholic anymore. So, um, but someday I won't have cirrhosis anymore. But the one person who will forever be scarred for all of eternity is Jesus. 
His scars won't go away as a permanent reminder of what he went through to make sure we had what we could not get on our own. So suffering like Jesus means that you're in it for the long haul, that you willingly put yourself at a place of disadvantage for life. That's what it means. The second thing that it means is is, it's an invitation to be wronged by others. Jesus, when he was crucified on the cross, it it wasn't an accident. I I, I read a quote where somebody had said, actually it was the writer of The Shack, uh, who who believes that if uh, he has a problem with with the uh, uh, crucifixion, and he says that if that really was God's plan, then God is a cosmic abuser is what he said, and so I reject that, is, is what he said. So his, I, from what I understand, the movie's really good, but his theology is, is really bad. But in, in any case, this isn't a conversation about the movie. It's just that guy who had, who had made that statement. But the truth is, Jesus did, God did not abuse Jesus for us. God, God sent his son to sacrifice for us in the same way that some of you parents have sent your kids in the military to lay down their lives for our freedoms. You're not an abuser to put your son in harm's way for the good of others. In fact, in our society, there's no characteristic, no virtue more noble than that, than when somebody would lay down their lives for, for someone else. That's honorable. That's what Jesus did for us. He intentionally allowed himself to be wrong. Almost as, It's not that he welcomed it. He intentionally positioned himself in a place where he knew that it would happen. That's what he did. It wasn't an accident. Jesus wasn't helpless in this. In fact, Matthew chapter 26, I want to show you that passage of Scripture. If you've got your Bible, go to Matthew chapter 26. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 53, what's happened in this chapter is that Jesus has had the Last Supper. You remember from the painting with Leonardo da Vinci. Um, he made that famous painting of the Last Supper, Jesus in the middle, and six disciples on either side. And, you know, we celebrate communion. That was kind of like the, the, the transition of the Passover Seder uh, becoming a celebration. Uh, that, that Passover Seder had always been a picture of the, of the body that would be broken by the Messiah someday and the blood that the Messiah would shed someday to rescue all of us from sin. Just like the Passover lamb was sacrificed to rescue Israel from Egypt, which has always been a picture of sin, the Messiah would have to sacrifice his body and his blood to rescue all of mankind from sin. So Passover all along has been a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And that's the point that Jesus makes at the Last Supper. And at the end of the middle of the, the Last Supper, he says, uh, whoever I give this cup to is going to betray me. And, and then so the Bible says that he, he takes the bread, he dips it in the wine, and, and he eats it. And then he hands the cup to Judas, who takes the bread, dips it in the wine, and hands it to the next disciple. And then all the disciples said, so which one is it? They were a little bit slow. And then, and then Judas looks at Jesus, and Jesus looks at him, and he says, what you need to do, get it over with. And Judas gets up, and he walks out of the Last Supper, and he goes to the temple to get the priest. Then they have a conversation. It's one of the last private conversations. It's actually the longest private conversation that we have of Jesus with his disciples in the entire Bible, and he talks to them about a whole lot of cool stuff. You can read it on your own time. But at, towards the end of that conversation, he goes, all of you guys will betray me tonight. Peter goes, I won't. Jesus said, yeah, you will. He's like, uh-uh. Jesus said, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. I don't know how long that went. Jesus probably the first one to break that off. All right, that's ridiculous. You are. <laughs> Let's all go to the garden. That's my favorite prayer spot, and we're going to pray. We need to prepare our hearts for what's about to happen. Between the Last Supper and the garden, somehow, Peter arms himself with a sword. He's a fisherman. He's not a trained fighter. What the heck is he doing with a sword, right? Like, you know probably somebody who has a license to carry permit and who has no business owning a gun. 
That was Peter. He's a fisherman. What in the world are you doing with a sword? He takes a sword to a prayer meeting is what he does. When Judas kisses Jesus and the soldiers come out to arrest him, all the disciples scatter, but Peter said he wouldn't, right? And he takes out his sword, right? And the Bible says he chops off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. Do you think he was aiming for the ear? Because if he was aiming for the ear and he got it, homeboy's a ninja. He wasn't aiming for the ear. What was he aiming for? His head. So he takes out the sword to go, and all he does is go Matrix style on him like that, right? But not Matrix enough because it lops off his ear. Jesus fixes it, which had to be incredibly discouraging to Peter. Jesus, I worked so hard for that ear, then you just put it right back on. What's the point? Right after, how many guys knew that Peter tried to chop somebody's head off at, at the night Jesus was betrayed? Who did not know that? Raise your hand. That's a cool story. It's in Matthew chapter 26. So here's what Jesus says to him when that happens. Then Jesus said, verse 52, it's not going to pick up on the screen until verse 53, but in verse 52, Jesus said, put away your sword. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. Don't you realize that I could have asked my father for thousands of angels to protect me, and he would have sent them instantly? Don't you know I didn't have to do this? But I did. Peter, it's okay, dude. See, here's the thing. You don't have to put yourself out for the orphan. It's your life. You do what you want. But to suffer like Jesus means that you do what you don't have to do. To do for others what they are incapable of doing for themselves. It's that you willingly put yourself in a position where some kid who's not even related to you is going to look you right in the face and say, I freaking hate you. Yes, if it won't be as nice as that. It's to put yourself in a place where you know you're going to be hurt and you're going to be wounded deeply, and you're going to be hurt in ways that you've never been hurt before. But you're man enough to take it. That's why you'll do it. Because you have depth. You have the capacity to love this kid in a way nobody else in the world will ever love them. And that's why you'll do it. You will do it simply because you can. And because somebody has to, or this kid's got no shot. That's why he'll do it. That's what it means to suffer like Jesus. And the third thing that Jesus does, the third way that he suffers, is that he gave up what he had to make sure we could have it. The Bible says in Matthew chapter, Mark chapter 15, verse 34, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he prayed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, God walked away from Jesus. He gave up his father so that we could have him as our father. He gave up his life so that we could have new life. He became sin so that we wouldn't be sin anymore. He gave up what he had to give us what we needed, and that's what it looks like to suffer. It's when a teenager who's an 11th grade kid gives up their popularity to sit with a kid who's not popular knowing that some of their friends might pick on them or tease them for, for sitting with that kid at the lunch table. They do it anyway. That's what Jesus would do. When you stick up for the person at work who is a moron, like they, they should be, I mean, you know they just, they're... but somebody's got to stick up for them. You can't treat them like that. I know they're a jerk. I know they hurt other people, but somebody's got to love them. It's when we give up what we have to make sure others have what they need. That's when we suffer like Jesus. 
allowing others into our lives was always going to cost us more than those people can ever repay us. And that's okay, because we can handle it. We've got the depth. We're man enough and woman enough. Woman, woman, woman enough? Woman enough. I'm not woman enough. We, man enough and woman enough, to love the unlovely, to forgive the unforgivable, and to care for the selfish. I think that if God puts it on your heart to foster or adopt, you're going to struggle with a few different fears. And I don't have time to address all of the fears. I know that one of the fears, so I'm just going to pick two. One of the fears I think you may struggle with is, is the fear of what this is going to cost you. Now, if you do an international adoption, that's going to cost crazy amounts of money. And that's because you're American. So if you have dual citizenship, try to adopt probably under your other passport. But it is crazy expensive to adopt internationally. But there are interest-free adoption loans that you can pursue. Interest-free. There's family that can help you out. People in your life group might be willing to help you out. You don't have to go through this alone. If you want to adopt a kid here in the state of Massachusetts, did you know that that's free? They'll pay for that. The only way it'll cost money is if you insist on having your own private lawyer. And then that's on you. They won't pay for that. They'll give you a lawyer. But if you want your own, you'd have to pay for that. But if you're willing to go through the state's lawyer and to do it through their work, it's free. You can adopt a kid for free. Some of you, to be a foster parent, might need to build out a be an extra bedroom in, in your basement. Some of you guys to play a part in adoptive care or foster care doesn't mean that you become a, an adoptive parent or foster parent. It might mean that you volunteer your time to help somebody else in our church remodel their basement so that they've got an extra bedroom so that they can be a foster parent. My phone was supposed to be turned off. That's my time. We're done, apparently. Some of you guys, honestly, what your role is in this is to write a big fat check for somebody else who is going through an adoption. Maybe you're past the age of having little kids in the house, but you have more disposable income. And there are younger families in here who really are trying to adopt a kid from Haiti or Guatemala or Eastern Europe or somewhere else like there, or Asia, and they're trying to raise $30,000. And you have the, truthfully, if you wanted to pay for somebody's adoption, you could do that. And it would hardly put a dent in your savings. Or you could do something. I don't, we can be the connector to another family. We can help you help others. Whether it is directly or, or indirectly. And I think the other fear that you might have is that what if they don't fit in with the rest of your family? And for me, I think that this is the biggest one. What if they don't fit into our family? And I'm not necessarily talking about relationally, but did you know that only 10% of, of, of adoptive parents are willing to adopt a kid that don't share their same race? You know what the one number one hardest type of kid to adopt is? It's a black boy. African-American boys don't get it. That is not as God would have. And it shouldn't matter to you what your grandmother is going to say if you have a different color kid in your family. Those of us who become followers of Jesus, those of us who are people of the gospel, the gospel moves us to find our identity in Jesus before we ever found our identity in our race.
I am first and foremost a child of God. Not a white guy. Although I'm, the more you know me, the more white you find out I actually am. <laughs> but what kind of kid you sh should you adopt? Whatever kid needs it most, dang it. Whatever kid. Whatever kid. That ought to break somebody's heart in here. What about disabled kids? Do you know Jesus talks about this? This is the last verse we're looking up, but that's in Luke chapter 14. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus says this. Luke 14, verse 13 and 14. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. I have a friend of mine who's a church planter in Maricopa, Arizona. And he goes, when he does the adoptions, he does in-state adoptions because they're free. And he and his wife, they can't have any kids, but they have a ton of love. And they want someone to be there to receive and benefit from that love. So two of the three kids they've adopted from the state have, have disabilities. And one of, their, one of their kids has a severe disability. And I think that that's beautiful. I think that's beautiful. There is no way that you will ever suffer in the name of Jesus for his glory and for the good of others that God will not repay you more than what you suffered to do them that good for his glory. It pales in comparison to the reward that God says, I will give you when you do for those who can't repay you. Your job is to figure out what that's going to look like in your life this week. It's not my job to tell you what it is. I don't know. But I know you need to do something for someone who can't pay it back. Because that's exactly what God has done for us. And we couldn't pay it back either. And there is nothing that will more demonstrate your relationship with God than that. That's what this series is about. So if you would bow your head with me, we'll pray. God ain't no perfect people in this room. We all know that. We're all broken at some level. You showed up in human history to pay for that brokenness, to take on our sin, our, our disobedience towards God, our rebelliousness against the Ten Commandments, our selfishness towards our fellow man. Someday we'll stand before you, and when you say, are you innocent or guilty of breaking my laws and being selfish towards others, we'll all say that we're guilty, and that's why we need Jesus, because only he wasn't. And I'm thankful that he took the punishment for my guilt voluntarily, laid down his life and sacrificed his, himself so that I wouldn't have to pay for my sins, so that I could go free, so that on judgment day I could be declared innocent even though I'm not because Jesus was in my place. God, help us to stand in the place of those who are abused, who are neglected, who are without hope and help. Help us to look for places to care for people who need to be loved and cared for in our middle schools, at high school, at work, in our apartment complexes, on our street, at the parent-teacher meetings when we bump into other families in the community. Help us to look for people who need somebody to care about them. God, the, the, the orphan and foster kid, they, they exist below the radar in our culture. And, and, and it's the scriptures that move us to fine-tune our radar so that they pop up on our screen. 
God, I've got to believe that there are future foster parents in this church family and future adoptive parents. Not all of us, maybe not most of us or even half of us, but some of us. And I think our prayer needs to be, God, if that's me, just let me not stop thinking about this. And if it's not you, I don't think you need to feel shame or guilt over that. I think your prayer is, God, what can I do to help make this happen for others? How can I love those who feel unloved? How can I care for those who have no one else to care for them? It might not even be a kid or, or an old person, a widow. It, it, it might be somebody in your school. It might be somebody in your family. It might be that socially awkward person at work. God, move us to do for others what you did for us. That is our prayer, and we ask it in the name of Jesus, and we all say together, amen.